That's a great question because, again, it's serving the three kings, as my colleague at Pair was saying, about serving the patient, provider, and payer. And they all have different interests and incentives. At the end of the day, we need to be patient-centric. And that's what I'm super bullish on, as I said, from my background at PillPack. I think it's all about being human-centered, user-centered. And if I'm patient-centered, right, building and designing products and services around that. But it is important to keep the providers and payers at the end of the day as well. Why should they be interested in using this product? Does it save them time? Does it help them to allow maybe optimize the therapy regimen or get better therapeutic outcome from the patient? Can you translate that in dollar value and convince the payers and providers? Because as we have to understand, there's only so many so much resource that can go around. Of course, we love to reimburse for everything that comes out in the market that can help patients like make patients' lives better at the end of the day, but their competing priorities and products and services at hand that payers need to think about, that providers need to think about. Good morning, everyone. This is the Healthy Idea Podcast by Iman and Nico. I'm Iman. And I'm Nico. And on our podcast, we sit down with founders on how they're using new technologies to solve critical health issues that face our society today. We learn more about their journeys into entrepreneurship and how they started their company. We hope to shed light on innovations in health and encourage you to think of what's possible with technology today. Before we get started, Amon and I wanted to ask you to leave a review of our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Reviews play a huge role in reaching new listeners for the podcast, and it would mean the world to me and Amon if you did. Now with that out of the way, let's get into this week's episode. What are digital therapeutics or what does it mean to be a digital therapeutics company and what are digital therapeutics? <laughs> That's that, Those are very good questions to start the conversation with. Digital therapeutics is uh, born out of kind of this idea that we can use software as a drug. And mm-hmm. um, this is a whole new concept that I had a hard time thinking about because I was trained as a pharmacist and for us, the pharmacotherapy is the gold standard of how we go about attacking a disease or indicating. But if you really think about it, and I always ask myself or ask others who are asking about this question of what is digital therapeutics, it's somewhat an irrelevant question at first, which is uh, what is a vision of a pharma company? Mm-hmm. And some may say that, oh, it's all about making profit, which uh, yeah, seems to be sometimes the case if you look at it from the outside and the UCL. Mm-hmm. And, but I think at the end of the day, the ultimate vision of a pharmaceutical company or really any provider entity or a healthcare entity that's entering the space is to to make life better for the patients. And which a lot of the case in the pharma uh, you know, side of the things, it means to treat an illness and to secure for an indication. So let's think about that, right? Like before we think about digital therapeutics, let's think about what therapeutics is, right? Mm-hmm. Therapeutics is really uh, another way of saying that we're going to use this substance or we're going to use something to cure your illness. And what does the cure mean? It means that uh, we're bettering an outcome that's uh, perhaps predetermined by the medical science as a certain measurement, like an A1C in diabetes population. Or it might be your quality of life when you think about certain medications like or a Viagra, which you might be more familiar with. This is all to say that we're all here for the betterment of patient's health at the end of the days, and therapeutic is a means to do that. So we use small molecule like aspirin or pills that you're more familiar with. We use biologics, which are a lot of these medications that come in syringe format that you inject your body, right? Like Inflexmap is the one mm-hmm. that comes to my mind right now. And then we use uh, gene editing technology even. Now we're trying to get into RNI, uh, RNA uh, interference therapy, like what I think Anilum is working on, or mRNA therapy, like what Moderna is working on, or to push mm-hmm. the conversation even further, like to think about CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which you might be more familiar with kind of viewing it as the, the scissor for genetics, almost like that's what we call it in the Korean space, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And all this, at the end of the day, if you think about it, just comes in a different format or means, but it is there to serve the same purpose. It is to cure an illness or to make a patient's uh, health outcome better. And really using a software as a drug or digital therapeutics is no different. We're basically using the digital means to treat patient's indication or to make patients life better in certain some means. And uh, it is a very new space that we entered into. And Pair uh, first, I think, opened up this chapter of digital therapeutics and 
a more of a public light, so to speak. I think it started becoming more of a word or phrase that everybody kind of talks about since it's gotten its approval several years back now with Reset. That was a treatment indicated, digital therapeutics treatment that was indicated for substance use disorder. Mm. And the rest is history. I think we've been definitely having some very interesting conversation in the last three to four years and certainly excited to be that part of exciting conversation and new space where we're figuring out how this digital therapeutics could be interest, uh, integrated into traditional medicine. Gotcha. Very cool. And so how does someone go about measuring the efficacy on a high level, like measuring the efficacy of a digital therapeutic? Absolutely. And to maybe add to your question, which I may, might be putting a little bit more on myself, is to think about the effectiveness of the medication or digital therapeutics as well. So just as mm-hmm. like a brief refresher, at least from my training, we learned efficacy in school as a outcome, a desired outcome, in the sense speak in a controlled setting so this is your lab environment basically or controlled environment and effectiveness is more of a real world outcome that's desired so it's think about it's really interesting and important to think about digital therapeutics in these two buckets especially when it comes to testing for its uh, benefits and kind of advantage to our patient population so efficacy of digital therapeutics is measured and tested just as any other drug would be tested we first find a great asset, at least this is how you know we do it at Weld and what we did at Pair was to find a great asset that is a very uh, promising kind of outcome in terms of therapy indication. Uh, let's take the cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT shortened, that we use for Reseto and Somrisk. So CBT is a, it's face value, basically counseling or method of counseling that providers or psychotherapists offer to patients that allow you to look more in depth into your negative thoughts and making sure that your negative thoughts uh, do not lead into behavior, uh, which could could be losing sleep overnight or it could be uh, addiction mm-hmm. right, to a certain substance. But that being said, all that existed in a physical world, so to speak, before the emergence of digital therapeutics or this digital therapeutic products that are entering the space. But what Pear did and what these interesting digital therapeutic companies are doing is that they're digitalizing this mechanism of action or MOAs and really looking forward to lower the barrier to entry for a lot of these uh, patients to access healthcare. But to again go back to your question of how we test for efficacy in this space is um, or I guess Danny made, before, uh, right before you get into that can you tell me or ex- help explain to me in the audience what MOA actually is like what is a mechanism <laughs> of action absolutely so mechanism <laughs> of action is another really fancy way of saying that this is how this drug works so any mm-hmm. uh, drug that you might be there with taking has a mechanism of action so I'm trying to think of one that maybe folks will be familiar with beta blockers are a mechanism of action for metoprolol or any of these low medications that you might take for your heart disease. And all that's to say that, hey, like this drug is working by modifying or impacting certain pathways or uh, biological functions in your body or your baby brain to create a therapeutic outcome. So it's basically a method of how a drug works. And when we say MOA or mechanism of action and digital therapeutics, it means the same thing. How on earth does this drug or this therapeutic treat an indication? What mechanism does it work by? And in the case of Reset, uh, Resetto and Somris, there was CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Very cool. Awesome. And then you were talking about proving out efficacy? Yep. So efficacy is interesting. And that's where I think a lot of focus has been since the introduction of digital therapeutics uh, several years back by a lot of these uh, industry leaders in the space. And we really do that by the same way that pharma might test that in the for a drug candidate. And first is to create a target product profile, thinking about which patient population we're targeting, what outcomes we're going to measure, primary outcomes, secondary outcomes, how we're going to study these outcomes in this patient population by ways of designing a study, formulating a study protocol, and uh, creating an inclusion-exclusion criteria. So maybe those of you who are coming from the pharma in the audience will be much more familiar with this process, I think, than a lay person listening to this. But mm-hmm. it is all to say that we're really creating a scientific hypothesis and testing it out. And we do this in a statistically sound manner with an 
enough power to extract a statistical significance mm. in our outcome differences. And to really uh, follow the gold standard, all clinical trials, that is randomized controlled trial. Mm-hmm. I think when we look at and when the regulators look at a lot of these products coming into the market and when we're asking about this question of efficacy, they're looking at the results of RCTs, the randomized controlled trials, and try to see how it has impacted the patient population and the primary outcomes that they're measuring for this indication. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For those of you at home who might be like myself and not have the most experience from understand, basically we talk about exclusion, inclusion, the power of the or studying, making sure you have statistical power, essentially just making sure that you're basically, long story short, is you're doing everything that you would traditionally do for a traditional pharma product where you're identifying who shouldn't do it, who should be in the study, making sure you have enough people in the study, things like that. Is that correct? You are spot on. And maybe to an answer, go back to my question that I added on, which was how does digital therapeutics then work in real world that is uh, to test for effectiveness? I think this is where digital therapeutics really shines and stands outside its uh, peers, right? That is the small molecules, the large molecules, the biologics and gene therapies and things of that sort, right? Because of the digital means of this therapy, we are able to measure outcomes in real world. And I keep saying real world because uh, it's hard to test for efficacy or to really uh, see the change in therapeutic outcome, primary indication. Give you an example, like basically how well while you're sleeping, maybe through an mm-hmm. insomnia index score or through your sleep onset time, things of that sort outside the lab setting, right? Once the pill was out and it was given to the patient, there was no way of correctly and continuously tracking how they're doing on these medications or how they're doing on these therapies. But because a digital therapeutics takes place in digital means, we're able to track a therapeutic outcome along the way when integrated mm-hmm. with right digital biomarker, right? So I'll give you a quick example of maybe the insomnia space. So when we prescribe uh, Zolpidem, which is a medication that will stay to you and you know, put you to kind of sleep, you better sleep, you take that and you fall to sleep and maybe the doctor will ask you a question next time you come around to say, oh, like, how did that work? Did you sleep well on that medication? And the patient does not have too many things to go off of and but to say that, eh, that worked mm-hmm. or uh, as it didn't. Versus when you integrate a lot of these interesting digital health technologies, which I'm calling digital biomarker, but it's really a fancy way of saying data collected through wearables or apps that quantify mm-hmm. your exogenous data or the data that your body produces or your environment produces. We're now able to track for that. So say, for example, now Zolpidem is prescribed alongside a wearable like Apple Watch or Whoop, a wearable band that I love. Now the patient and the provider is able to see, oh, I actually slept uh, three more hours on average than when I wasn't on this medication. Oh, I was less disturbed during the night or I I had less wake up during the night or I felt to sleep a lot faster than before I was on this medication. And this is the beauty of digital biomarker. And if you even add digital therapeutics to that, it's even more interesting. This uh, different therapies and ways of monitoring the disease progression create a synergy effect. Mm, Very cool. And that, that makes a ton of sense because like you said, the app is inherently digital, which allows you to constantly track kind of the outcomes that your patients are seeing and actually report that directly to doctors. That is correct. And we can talk more about how different uh, synergetic effects are created between digital health technologies. And personally, my interest is in how uh, healthcare professionals, um, and I'm very biased because my background is in pharmacy, but how pharmacists could play a role in this new exciting world as well. Mm-hmm. So that's where a lot of my interests are lately. That's great. We would love to hear about it if you want to go into that. That'd be great. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I definitely led the question did I? <laughs> um, That's okay. So I make my job a little easier. <laughs> Beautiful. I think there's a very interesting role that pharmacists could play in this uh, new exciting world. I personally think that uh, pharmacist's role in healthcare is to be a translator, is to translate a lot of these hard medical knowledge into a more digestible words to patient. How does this drug work? Oh, it works by reducing the sodium level in your you know body, and or it works by excreting water so it you know reduces 
the blood pressure versus saying that, hey, this like works in your loop diuretics and absorbs like you know, contents there. Things that things to medical jargons that uh, you know layperson cannot understand. I think the pharmacists are there to translate it. If it's a physician's job or a doctor's job too, when the patient comes in through the door, or nowadays patient comes in through the phone screen and to quickly uh, monitor and screen them to see what's wrong with their body and what would be the best kind of diagnosis to give. And according to the treatment guideline, prescribing medication, the pharmacist's job is to become an expert in these medications that are being dispensed, know the ins and outs of it. How does it work? How does it interact with other medications that the patient might be taking? And what are some of the side effects or cautions that this patient should look out for? Like some medications create a black stool and patients freak out when they first see that. But sometimes that's a very common, say, for example, if you're taking a bit of passport or something like that. So explaining mm. those things mm-hmm. and more patient-friendly language is the job of a pharmacist. And I think there is a role uh, that a pharmacist could play in this new exciting world of digital health and digital therapeutics as well. If there is one thing that needs to get translated nowadays in digital health is data. Mm-hmm. Digital health, I think another way of explaining it is data-driven medicine. You know, we're very focused on mm-hmm. evidence-based medicine, but I think digital health is proposing a data-driven medicine. If evidence-based medicine was more a population-level approach of, uh, hey, like we tested this uh, therapy on 100 people and here's what we recommend this first line second line third line you know what data-driven medicine allows you to do is to really get to that personalized medicine and the 4p of medicine and precision personalization because it focuses around you what works best for you maybe it may not be the best for others but again it may be the best for you and data-driven medicine or digital healthcare really allows for that and the way we do that is by collecting analyzing integrating and treating with data. And it's, I think, maybe easier to give an example of how this could be realized in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And smart belt, well, technology might be a good way of doing this, right? So say, for example, we're collecting your waist circumference, and then we're analyzing Mm -hmm. it to say that, oh, the waist circumference has increased about an inch or two over the last two weeks. That's it. There's not much to be said there. So patient might ask this question of, so what? Like, great, I like learned about these numbers, but what do they mean to me and what do I need to do with it? And this is where integration of data comes in. Now, if you are able to uh, first find the pattern and maybe the waist circumference change that every Wednesday evening, my waist circumference is going up an inch or two. But suddenly now mm-hmm. you're bringing on a financial data, your maybe card spending habits or your transaction history. And now you know that every Wednesday evening, I was going out to drink beer and uh, have a milkshake and fries at Shake Shack every mm-hmm. single week on Wednesday evenings. And when you integrate those two, now you're able to create a new insight saying that, oh, like I should maybe cut down on those fries and milkshake every Wednesday evening. And this is what really at a face value that data-driven healthcare can do is to really collect a lot of these different data points that might not mean anything on its single mm-hmm. uh, you know, silo and creating an insight out of something that might not make sense when it's uh, separated. And now if you can even add on how to treat with this, that's even better. Not even a mm-hmm. light intervention, like you should cut down on milkshakes, but if it's more of a serious indication, like if you have a hyperlipidemia, hypertension, mm-hmm. or chronic insomnia, substance use disorder, how can you use the data to better help the patient? And this is what digital therapeutics is set out to do. And what I think is the role of the pharmacist is to interpret this data and to integrate this data and bring it back to the point of care so we can treat with this data. Because we know that you know a lot of the data are being generated and collected every day, but there is not enough integration and interpretation of this data into the point of care. And heck, the patients do not even know what to do with it, even though they're collecting it. Mm, exactly. And that, that's really exciting. Super interesting case study. So my question for you is, once we start getting all this data, I guess I have two questions. I'll start with the first one. Who do you think will end up being responsible for aggregating all that data? I think that's a very interesting question. I had a brief chat to talk about this in that webinar series that we're doing at Northeastern University, my alma mater, on digital health. And uh, we're talking with policymakers around you know, the importance of data 
individual health. And at the end of the day, the short answer to that is patient, the person. Mm. Everything changes in healthcare. You might change your provider, you might change your insurance, the payer. Heck, your indication might change, your devices might change. But one thing that doesn't change is you, the patient, mm -hmm. the user. And if you're able to maybe extrapolate from that insight uh, into how we're going to be utilizing and maybe thinking about the ownership of data, it has to go into the hands of the patient, who will be the consistent factor throughout this whole journey. And uh, what Apple is doing is really interesting with the PHR or personal healthcare record, where in Korea, there's been a big initiative to push for what we call my data, or to again, allow for that personalization of data and to carry that data in person. And I think that's certainly where the industrial head or where the system will head. And a very interesting example to look at is uh, Estonia, right? Random fact about me is I'm an e-resident at Estonia, a country in Europe that's mm -hmm. known for a uh, birth of Skype and e-residency, which is pretty interesting. And they give you this little card that you carry around with you. And God forbid, if you get into an accident and maybe you're unconscious, what the provider or healthcare professional can do is they can take a card from your wallet and they can um, insert it into a device that reads all the data that pertains to your health. What comorbidities did you have? What medication history did you have? Maybe what is the last lab test that you had? Any medication allergies? So that we're not going into this uh, healthcare system or treatment blind, but more with mm -hmm. uh, empowerment of data, so to speak. So that's where I see the ownership and data experience of healthcare going. So what do you mean by e-citizen? Oh, e-resident. It's pretty interesting. Oh, e so they, yeah, they basically said that, hey, we're, we know that digital is the way that we're uh, heading towards the future. Basically, we're going to allow you to do business that's based out of Estonia, maybe without even being there physically, but we're giving you a digital residence. So like, you can basically conduct business in any of the EU. I don't know. Like really, when I first signed up for it, I just thought it was a super <laughs> cool concept that they're creating this e-residency. And really, I frankly do not know. I haven't even utilized it to this day, but it allows me to talk about these cool things, like how these uh, e-resident mm -hmm. cards and things that sort are being utilized in healthcare. Wild. Okay, I'll have to check that out. That seems super interesting. But basically, you believe that at the end of the day, consumers, or at least the patients that have more access to their own data. That is correct. And that's the way it should be. We should empower the patient always. And so do you feel right? Because I feel like if I'm just imagining, all right, how do I start taking in all my different data from all different sources? And do I just end up putting it all on Excel file? Do you foresee just like a cropping up of companies and startups that are just focused on helping patients managing their own data? Oh, 100%. And there'll be more kind of demand for those who can do this Personals. And I'm certainly hoping that my profession can go into that space as well. But it may be nurses and maybe, you know, even data scientists that are going into this space. But there's already been interesting, I mean, technologies and apps that are in the, in the area. If you're an iPhone user, go search of Apple Health. You might not even notice that's there. It's been counting steps mm -hmm. that you've been taking. It's been, if you've been actively inputting, counting calories that you've been taking or weight. Uh, I didn't know that my scale was smart scale. It integrated with my, you know, iPhone and was able to calculate my changes in weight and now it calculates your BMI, the water content in your body, things of that sort. Mm. It's pretty interesting. But and if you're a Samsung phone user, go into your S salt. Uh, it might be <laughs> doing the same thing as well. <laughs> and Apple's been working on a very interesting kind of usage case, a PHR that I earlier introduced in BA, actually. So for those of you who are interested in maybe how Apple is working with BA in terms of having the veterans uh, carry around basically iPhone and uh, using PHR at different hospitals or care points that they're mm -hmm. doing. And, uh, and PHR is? A personal healthcare record or personal health record. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, just to recommend people look into the PHR work that people are, that Apple is doing with the VA. Yep, that is correct. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and pass the baton over to Oman for the rest of our questions. Thank you, Nico. Hi, Danny. How are you doing again? <laughs> pretty good. It's, it's 12 a.m. back here in Seoul, but this conversation is definitely going to keep me thinking for the night. Yeah, thanks for all the stimulating questions. <laughs> oh, no problem. Thank you for answering it. Personally, I had a lot of questions about the kind of the role you play at Welt and Welt was built for. One of my questions is simply Samsung is a very large technology manufacturer distributor brand. And I found it very interesting that they created this sidearm in the digital therapeutic space. So I'd love to learn 
learn why that was the case and what was the rationale behind some of that stuff. Absolutely. So Samsung has a very interesting program in place, which we're a part of called C-Lab. And it's a, a venture arm of Samsung, basically, that allows uh, folks who are working uh, within these uh, this big conglomerate organization to test for exciting ideas. And you have all the resources at hand that's provided mm-hmm. by uh, this big giant like Samsung. And Welt started off with that. We found an interesting technology, a sensor technology in the space, and said that, like, hey, like we like to apply this to maybe healthcare and see how it does. And Samsung is too big of a entity or a player to be doing this themselves and to move quickly in this space as well. So Walt quickly spun off with Samsung's investment in the space and all the resources and connections that we had in space as well. But I think really the rationale behind why they're interested in this thing is because at the end of the day, these big technology companies are truly believing that healthcare is going to be where they leave the biggest mark. Like I think Apple, Tim Cook said this uh, beautifully the other day, I think some year ago actually, that if humanity looks back on Apple's legacy on benefiting the human race, it would be not mm-hmm. iPhone or mobile technology, but it would be healthcare. And I think that's certainly wow. super interesting. We're I'm thinking that we're just really fortunate to be uh, part of the conversation, part of that exciting uh, digital health movement. And really, Walt was born out of that. And maybe to maybe backtrack a little bit, because our vision could sound a little vague when we say that we're here to interrupt the or really innovate in the healthcare space by creating a personalized digital therapeutic by integration of digital biomarker and digital therapeutics. I think a better way is to maybe introduce why I got really interested in this company, what I saw in them, and how my vision aligned aligned with the co-founder's vision. Um, and that is mm-hmm. to democratize healthcare. And I, would I think love this to is that. yeah, absolutely. So I think this yeah. is the biggest selling point or biggest vision that I was about for, and that is really democratize democratization of healthcare. Another way of saying increasing accessibility to healthcare. I think all these technologies, even outside healthcare, had their roots in being a service or a product for the few. In a capitalist society, it's usually those with the means to purchase or to use these products. So like to earlier case of PillPack, like sure, there could have been someone who could have been making the calls to your providers, payers, and even packaging the pills so that you don't have to worry about anything but to swallow those pills with a glass of water that maybe a butler brings to you. But what PillPack did is they used this digital means and digital health technologies, uh, digital technologies to offer that to everyone at low cost. They lower the entry to barrier. And what digital therapeutics is promising is doing the same thing as well. When you think about it, there has been, now I'm going to go back to the CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy example that I gave in earlier conversation with Nico. And cognitive behavioral therapy was something that you could sort out if you had depression or if you had trouble falling asleep, if you had addiction. Mm-hmm. Seeking out for the psychotherapist or counselors can be very costly and you might have to wait for weeks if not months to see one right not to mention that it's going to be a heavy financial burden for not only the patients but the payers as well so it's certainly be underutilized so when you look at the chronic insomnia and when you look at the professional medical society's guideline on it the first line therapy for these patients what should be done first to treat these patients is to use cbti cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia but because it's so costly and the barrier to entry is high we've been resorting to the second you know, line of therapy, which are medications like sulfidin and benzodiazepines. And what digital therapeutics has allowed to do is to lower this barrier to entry by creating what only digital can do, is to create a 24-7 accessible care partner along your journey of attacking and recovering from an indication that you're suffering from. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, been the biggest interest that drew me to digital therapeutics. And it's even more interesting how digital therapeutics integrates with virtual care or telemedicine to create even more synergetic effect. No, I completely agree with that. I think it's really interesting when you bring up things like CBT, because what I've been seeing with digital therapeutics is this interest in mental health and in things like cognitive behavioral therapy. I wonder if you said that out of a example or if that's something that you've been looking close to. Certainly, pairs, a lot of products, pairs, a lot of products that pair have been focused around CBT as well. We've been focused around using CBT for our CNS targeting assets as well. But the mm-hmm. reason maybe another way of looking at this question that you asked is why is CBT or even psychiatry indications or uh, indications that pertain to brain disorders more of an interest to digital health companies or digital therapeutics yeah. companies these days? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's because we can categorize digital therapeutics into 
two big buckets. One is digital therapeutics that are targeting uh, mechanism actions that have already been proven in the offline world. As I said, it could be CBT has already shown great promise in attacking these indications, right? Chronic insomnia and substance use disorder. And what these digital health companies are doing or digital therapeutic companies are doing is to digitalize it, quite literally, to put it into an app. Mm -hmm. Versus uh, the second bucket is to create a whole new mechanism of action that hasn't existed before. But uh, think companies, in their opinion, think that could uh, have a therapeutic benefit for patients. And this is like a game that may treat or improve symptoms of ADHD, like what Achille has been working on. And I have so much respect for them because they're really paving a new path for healthcare to follow. Who would have thought that uh, using a game could be an intervention for ADHD versus taking Adderall, which is methamphetamine, really? And it's, and it's hard to cut you off, but one interesting yeah. thing about Achille is the FDA approval. And I believe one of the first game-based therapies that's gotten approved. I think it's the first one, yeah. It's the first one, yeah. So it's interesting, this kind of like new generation of therapeutics. And I don't know much about the FDA kind of like criteria for this kind of stuff, but it seems like they're being more open to new forms of kind of healthcare delivery. I think we I also mean, saw that with COVID. Uh-huh, 100%. They uh, had a EUA for all CBT-based apps that, you know, were uh, out there in the space. So Achilles definitely took advantage of it and sought for regulatory approval, I think, within a, or launched the uh, within a week frame of time, which is crazy. I had a chance to hear from their CMO during the conference a couple of weeks ago at DTX West and the way that they leverage COVID. Really, COVID-19 has been a silver lining for digital health in a lot of means. The faster adoption that we've been seeing in the space has been incredible. Also unfortunate, I had to take COVID-19 or a pandemic like COVID-19 for this to be really a thing in mm-hmm. the public side. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm certainly grateful that uh, our industry has uh, proven value and hopefully you know, improved the patient's lives better at the end of the days. To go back to your question, it's about what FDA looks for in these products. all about safety and efficacy, right? So the efficacy piece yep. of it, I think, me and Nico and I chatted about it a little bit more earlier. The safety piece of it, I think, because it's software, FDA has a lot less of a pressure, I think, to test and really ask hard questions about safety unlike pharma, uh, unlike pharmacotherapy because they have so many side effects or adverse drug events. Yeah. But in terms of maybe to bring the audience's attention to another interesting product that might fall under the second bucket, creating a whole new mechanism of action to treat an indication, look at Nightwear. Interesting company that just got the FDA clearance to treat a PTSD or to uh, improve symptoms of PTSD works through Apple Watch. Apple Watch basically detects during your sleep when you have a nightmare or when you're suffering from PTSD episodes. The sensor algorithm detects that you're in a bad uh, bad sleep or bad nightmare. It sends a vibration and wakes you up gently. And I think saw efficacy in 80 people, I think, that are enlisted in RCT, randomized control trial, and now it's being piloted at PA. Super interesting space, to say the least. <laughs> wow, that is actually fascinating. I will definitely check it out. Awesome. Danny, I'm really curious, like, you seem to have a very robust knowledge of things going on in digital health in terms of startups. Is that part of what you do at Wealth? I know you're in corporate development. I would love to know, and our listeners as well, what does that entail at this kind of intersection of digital health and technology? Absolutely. And thanks for definitely regarding me as that. I, I try my hardest to like always keep <laughs> on top of the industry news because that's what really my job calls me out to do. It's to find interesting, promising assets, to in-license them, to package it well, maybe submit it through regulatory approval to figure out market access strategy and to later down the road create a outbound conversation with an interesting partner that could get this faster to the hands of the patients that we look out for. Corporate development pertains to all relationships and conversations that take place for growth of the company, I think. So we Mm -hmm. mostly categorize these conversations into inbound and outbound. And I think my conversation with Dico about how my role as an operator and investor in my previous days, I think, played a part in my current role at well. At, at back at Pair when I was a corporate development analyst as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of your second question of, was it a how do I keep up with this industry yeah, kind of landscaping? or mm. yeah, 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 essentially. Like, how do you keep up with it? There's there's always things coming about. I'm curious, how do you stay updated? It's, it's mostly through the news, right? So I have a couple of my team members working on newsletters that are sent out to our internal team members about what's been the latest and greatest in digital health landscape and see how they could integrate or dovetail with our product offerings or what we're thinking in long term about what we like to do in the space. So reading up a lot and having a lot of these conversations. And I have to say that like the work that you're doing, that you both are doing in this space of 
evangelizing for digital health so that outside our own bubble, more people recognize what digital health is. That's certainly a part of something that I do as well here in Korea and you know, back in Boston as well, because we're still a small industry. So it doesn't make sense for one company to really stand out and to be the be all end all. But really, it's to really raise the tide or to raise the tide so that all ships that are floating in it can also be raised as well. One ship cannot raise the tide. It has to be efforts of all players and stakeholders to really make digital health just health, to take the digital out of health and to put it in the traditional medicine so that more people can benefit from our service and product offerings. No, absolutely. So that's really cool that you guys are doing like a newsletter at, at Wealth. That's awesome. I find the digital formats to finding uh, more information on either the startup ecosystem or digital health in particular to be more of a trend. And yeah, of course, yeah, that's what we do here at Healthy Idea. But curious how like internally at these kinds of larger organizations, how you guys have been keeping up, especially in corporate development, since you're so ingrained in the partner world and it's part of what you do as a corp dev, like as 100%. somebody in corp dev. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. I'm curious, how has digital health kind of, what are your perspectives on digital health in the U.S. compared to outside of the U.S.? Oh, that's a tough question, right? And I think if I were to speak more from the digital therapeutics landscape, there has been so many interesting conversations on the regulatory scene and also the market access scene. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the wording market access, as I was too before I entered the space, it's all things related to getting the products into the hands of patients after it's been approved. If it needs to be. And this pertains to how to seek reimbursement you know, from the payers or how to get basically uh, products paid for and to have them ready at the point of care. And Germany has certainly published an interesting guideline and thoughts uh, with the latest DIGA update. So certainly implore you to look into that. NHS back in the UK created a digital health library app that kind of puts their rubber stamp because the more and more that we look at this global scene, what we're realizing is if you take a step back, and look at the digital health landscape is there's so many apps and service product offerings that are coming out. And what's really important is to create a lens that we can look at this and evaluate these apps from the user's perspective. What is a trustworthy and reliable app that could help me at the long term? Not just a scammy app that's going to take my money and not add any value. And really that's where the regulatory piece like FDA, rubber seal of stamp or NHS library app, having the government's blessing by saying that, hey, we have better through these apps and looked at the data that went behind making of this app and we endorsed this product, so to speak. So that's been uh, what's happening on a global scene. And I've been certainly part of the conversation as I was on the advisory board for kind of the Korean version of the FDA and the payer entity, the single payer entity in terms of how they should be viewing digital uh, therapeutics, evaluation of it and how it should be reimbursed. So certainly been exciting. <laughs> yeah, I can see regulatory wise how it could be very different from inside the US versus outside. I'm curious like maybe specifically in South Korea, for example, what is the capabilities of the technology there? Like I remember with COVID-19 coming about, contact tracing was already utilized there versus the United States was still coming about with a strategy of how to trace people with the virus or people who've been in touch with the virus. I found the technology really advanced, things like that. I'm curious, have you seen a difference in the technology capabilities? I think and you're, you're definitely right. Korea's done really well in terms of responding to COVID-19 early on. Uh, actually, one of my friends uh, in the space developed the app that basically translated the guideline into an app format so that it doesn't take three to five minutes flipping through papers to triage for the patient coming in for COVID-19, wow. but to just with a couple of uh, questions asked on the app, able to uh, streamline the process. Great guy. Has really shown the value of digital health in this space. But to answer your question about what the country's capability on digital kind of literacy, LEK Consulting had a great deck the other day that my friends at Click uh, shared with me. And it was saying Korea, I think, was number two in terms of the digital preparedness. And this is looking at like smartphone penetration rate, how the government is responding to digital health technologies. We're, we have a pretty ambitious initiative in place by the Korean government called the Digital New Deal. They're calling, they're definitely benchmarking for the New Deal back if you look at the US history. But what they're saying is post pandemic, they're seeing the digital becoming the next wave as we've been calling for this new word. Do we call the new world of untacked 
is how they're calling it. It means basically mm-hmm. it de-stresses the point of importance of contact or uh, on-tech, so to speak, economy, where everything had to be done in the offline setting. So what they're really pushing for is now things could be done in a virtual manner. You could, at the comfort of your home, I mean, get food delivered, get groceries delivered, get medications delivered, see a doctor, things of that sort. And government's really been pushing hard to make that a mainstream. Yeah, that's awesome. Why do you think there's like this interest in without COVID-19, do you feel like this would still be such a strong like sentiment for e-commerce and the ability to do delivery of almost everything? <laughs> if there's one thing that Korean people are known for is their appetite for getting things done fast and mm-hmm. more conveniently. We have one of the fastest internet, I think, in the world, if I may boast. I think I've never seen other where elsewhere in world where we have one gigabyte like per second, I think, if I and maybe saying that correctly. Uh, basically, it's big enough that you can download a movie, I think, within six, sec- seven seconds or something like that over a cellular wow. data, Wi-Fi even faster. And people still complain about website loading forever. And deliveries and e-commerce, like all super interesting too. Country's pretty small. Mm-hmm. Maybe thinking about delivery time is not there when you compare it to today shipping that Amazon's worked on back in the States. What Amazon's mm-hmm. done, I think, in the space is amazing. But what Korea's done is even crazier. You order mm-hmm. something, before maybe 2 p.m. the same day it comes by 6 or 7 <laughs> and wow. like uh, overnight shipping is very usual uh, coupon actually just uh, went public on the market actually back uh, they just IPO'd back in the US market and there's a reason why they IPO'd for such a high price because Korean e-commerce mm-hmm. is really promising it's definitely I think showing the promise of how healthcare could take advantage of the exciting conversation that's taking place as well so that's actually the reason I asked because I noticed I was familiar with coupon from friends who studied abroad in but I wasn't tracking the company and recently saw the IPO and was fascinated at like the logistics, the ability to do something similar to what you had just said, where you could order something 2 p.m. one day and get it by tomorrow morning the next day. It was just incredible. And I was learning more about it. So I figured I asked. So I'm sorry if it was adjacent to, to digital health. <laughs> no stuff, worries. But I was, no I worries. I find it really fascinating, the e-com piece. So yeah, um, definitely for those of you who are looking at the Korean market and scratching your head about what is the small country and you're doing in the digital health landscape. Look no further than like Coupang's IPO, as Man just mentioned, or Samsung, LG, Hyundai, a lot of these big companies that are building off of I think what Korea is best at doing, and that is to build technologies faster, cheaper, and better. <laughs> Do you feel like the fact that so many large tech players, like the ones you mentioned, LG and Samsung, could be contributing more and more to digital health, given the fact that they have such great tech at their disposal? And that could mean things through wealth, or that could mean through like medical devices, like building something of their own? No, 100%. I think they have a lot of uh, insights into the product and the user segment that they serve. But what they realized, I think, over the years, and I sometimes serve as an advisor for uh, some of these companies in Korea to enter and start a conversation around digital health. What they realize is they're great at making consumer technologies. But when it comes to serious illness or in medical need, meeting kind of demand of unmet medical need, it's a completely mm-hmm. different story, right? I always say the big tech's mantra back in Silicon Valley is moving fast and break things. Those are the words that are on the walls of Facebook. It makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense in the tech world, uh, moving fast and break things, because it's all about finding the product market fit as soon as possible and making sure that you can get on the J-curve or hockey stick to see the rapid growth and be the market dominator to deliver your service and products to the customer, to users. In healthcare, if you move fast and break, quote unquote things, the things that we break in healthcare are people's health. There is definitely a need to move fast, but we don't have the luxury of breaking things around. That's why maybe from the outside, when people view healthcare, the traditional healthcare here, sometimes they might feel like it's such an old, uh, ancient, archaic uh, space to look into. And I certainly agree with them to a certain extent. But at the same time, I think it is important to appreciate the intricacy of uh, why healthcare has become that become so conservative about these new technologies coming in or about moving and forward in the innovative pathway because it's not slow at adoption, but it's because what we're dealing with are people's health. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's also true from the provider side as well? Like we do break people's health if we move too fast. Sometimes you might be making something that doctors aren't so open to using or healthcare providers aren't so open to using at that speed. Let's face it, and that's a great question because again it's serving the three
Street Kings, as my colleague at Pear was saying, about serving the patient, provider, and payer. And they all have different interests and incentives. At the end of the day, we need to be patient-centric. And that's what I'm super bullish on, as I said, from my background at PillPack. I think it's all about being human-centered, user-centered. And if I'm patient-centered, building and you know, designing products and services around that. But it is important to keep the providers and payers at the end of the days as well. Why should they be interested in using this product? Does it save them time? Does it help them to allow, maybe optimize the therapy regimen or get better therapeutic outcome from the patient? Can you translate that in dollar value and convince the payers and providers? Because as we have to understand, there's only so many so much resource that can go around. Of course, we love to reimburse for everything that comes out in the market that can help patients like make patients' lives better at the end of the days, but there are competing priorities and products and services at hand that payers need to think about, that providers need to think about. That is another way of saying that as it's important to build a patient-centric product, we need to start thinking about making it more payer and provider-centric as well, to think mm-hmm. about their interest early on and integrating that into the planning phase of our products and services. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I like the analogy of the three kinks. I've not heard that before. I'll keep that one. That's great. I guess on my end, getting closer to like wrapping up my questions, I would love to know what the future for wealth holds in your eyes. I know you mentioned the smart belt, which was fascinating, but what do you see as the next step for some of the stuff wealth might be working on? So our first product indication that we went into after we developed the smart belt and when we're scratching our heads about what can be done with this data, we looked at the disease indication like sarcopenia. For those of you who are not familiar with sarcopenia as disease indication, it's a muscular degeneration. As you get old, you lose muscle mass. And in return, maybe you will have a shaky kind of balance when you walk around that might increase the risk of falling. And as Atul Gwande, I think, noted uh, in Being Mortal, fall is being prone to falling uh, is, I think, the start of everything uh, that leads to declination in health at an at a old age. So that being said, there is not a therapy in place, actually, for sarcopenia. A lot of pharma companies have been trying to develop drugs and pharmacotherapy to treat this indication, but they have all failed. A lot of the preclinical studies that's been done on RETS have created muscular RETS, but it hasn't done well in increasing the strength of these muscles so they can you know, regain their daily activity. So what Wealth has done is they look, we looked at the gold standard as of now to treat this indication, and that is physical therapy. So we recorded and developed the app version of this physical therapy that are being delivered in person. Again, we digitized it similar to how we digitized the CBT into an app. And now we're actually looking to do more clinical studies to put this under the regulatory pathway and to get you ready for commercialization as well. But the belt plays a very interesting role because it allows for the continuum of care versus if you go in at the current phase, if you just go into the hospital, the doctor basically draws a straight line, set up a camera and said, walk straight. And we're going to try to see if we can diagnose and to see how well you're doing on this physical therapy versus what we can do is we can put a belt on a patient and on the everyday, basically, as long as they have their belt on, track how they're doing with the physical therapy and even more, create a reactive module uh, or reactive therapy means so that we can curtail and personalize the therapy patients need. So this is another way of saying what wealth is to create the next generation digital therapeutics. And that in my vision and then our company's vision is creating a personalized digital therapy or therapeutics by making sure that digital biomarker and digital therapeutics can be integrated so well that it can learn from each other, right? How well the person is doing from the therapy and how can we curtail the therapy to meet more specific needs of the patient. Again, going back to the core of digital health, that is data-driven healthcare. So that's what Wealth's really passionate about and that's why I'm super passionate and bullish about the space as well. That's awesome. Thank you, Danny, for answering that question. I wish you super tons of luck on more of these kinds of attacking on critical health issues using tech, just like you had mentioned. Nico, do you have any other questions? Yeah, Danny, I would love to hear about as to how well goes about deciding what type of indications that they should pursue with their technology. Mm. <laughs> That's a great, great uh, question and framework. I'll try to answer it as much as I can without revealing too much of a mm-hmm. secret sauce. Right? Of course. <laughs> Because a lot of the time in any company's mind, how we go about really picking the indication, again, believe that one company shouldn't be taking all the credit or shouldn't grow in it for really the sake of industry. I think this is, I love to share it to the extent of maybe helping out our peers or those that are thinking about entering the space. And we look at disease indications that already have a proven mechanism of action that has worked. And mechanism of action that could 
be digitalized easily with little input. And I think our role is to create a organization that does as little research as possible, but focus our efforts mm-hmm. around development of an asset. So that's why corporate development role is important because we are in conversation with these partners from the in-licensing side of the things of looking at these promising assets that are coming out of Demia, that are coming out of biotechs, that are coming out of startups, that are maybe looking for ways to scale their product and service offering to many. They might have found a promising asset or promising ways of treating an illness, but to bring that up to the next level of making sure that FDA or any regulatory body is comfortable with approving it and the payer is comfortable with putting a price tag behind it and reimbursing for it is a different story. So the wealth kind of uh, strategy and looking into which the disease indication to go into kind of takes all those factors into consideration versus the treatment asset somewhat similar to what we already see in the offline space is second how would the regulators view it third how would the payers view it and find the middle ground gotcha that's fantastic and then how do you go about thinking about whether or not you guys should partner with other companies when going to market i think we try to look at what we're best at doing what each of the companies are best at doing so looking at our peers within digital therapeutics landscape like some are more familiar with mobile technology first kind of perspective meaning that they like to do everything in the mobile landscape first as in like smartphone and maybe not worry about hardware some of them might be more comfortable with doing hardware only but might not have as much familiarity in the software space so we try to look for those nuances and try to partner up with those that have the capability that we do not have um, as a company that was born out of Samsung that first initially focused on sensor technologies and now the uh, smartphone app technology and we're really thinking about partnering up with companies that have something that we do not gotcha no that makes a ton of sense and for those listening at home that wanted to learn more about digital therapeutics or the space as a whole do you have any recommendations on resources that they should check out absolutely so i'll again be a little more biased and recommend digital therapeutics alliance dta which wealth is a proud member of and there are a couple other companies like norgas gabardis headspace which is quite interesting how they are in the and why they're in actually member list and pair is also part of it as well dta through their website has done some beautiful work around what digital therapeutics is product up how payers and regulators should view digital therapeutics and if i may i actually did an interview with the head or the executive director of dta at my alma mater northeastern so if any of you are interested in learning more about digital therapeutics the whole origin the what works are being done and where the industry is heading look into my interview with megan coder the executive director of dta at northeastern university's uh, digital health webinar series perfect no that's great and if people wanted to learn more about well where should they go about well we're definitely keeping up to date at wealthcorp.com but also feel free to connect me on linkedin i'm at danny jiang kim perfect thank you so much thank you so much for coming on the show danny we really appreciate it no it was a great pleasure and i hope this conversation serves as a stimulator for those you're listening at home in terms of entering digital health my biggest entry or kind of thank you for the mentors that have uh, allowed me to enter this new exciting space was hearing their stories and i hope mm-hmm. that uh, a short story that i shared today through a great opportunity that these two wonderful uh, co-hosts provided can serve as that stimulator or that uh, starting point for those of you who are considering to enter healthcare digital healthcare thank you thank you and absolutely really appreciate it if you've made it this far in the episode, congratulations. You're one of our super fans. If you go to our podcast website, you can find our email. And if you reach out to us via email with one of your takeaways from today's episode, we'll give you a free 30-minute call where we'll answer any and all questions you have around digital health or startups.